0: Welcome to How Did You Think of That? My name is Temple Brandon, professor of animal science at Colorado State University. Popeye the Sailor Man, boom boom. I eat all the spinach that people don't finish. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man.
1: <laughs> I'm Sherry Quinn. The fictional cartoon character Popeye the Sailor Man got his superhuman strength from eating spinach because at the time the cartoon was created in the early 1930s, it was believed spinach had an exceptionally high iron content that humans could metabolize and benefit from. Popeye inspired generations of kids with the idea that eating spinach would make them strong, like him.
2: And actually, spinach isn't any more of a superfood than, than maybe just eating regular lettuce. But we all believed it, and Popeye told us it was so.
1: That is Shelley Banfield, director of the Davis and Perry Center at Santa Fe College in Gainesville, Florida. She is also the principal investigator for the National Science Foundation-funded project called GREAT, G-R-R-A-T-E, short for Guitars, Robotics, Rocketry, Advanced Technical Education. GREAT courses emphasize collaboration with industry partners to expose students to careers in STEM. Banfield explains what these courses mean to her and how they can inspire students.
2: You just don't know where things are going to lead. And so you know, I went to graduate school later in life after my kids were already in college. And, and it was just really interesting. And I really have a passion for really first-generation college students and and students that maybe didn't see themselves going to college. They didn't know that an opportunity existed for them. And so this course really does play so nicely into my, my passion over the years is really getting students excited about something they don't know anything about, right? They don't know anything about what a STEM career could be. They don't know. They don't have those in their town. They don't know anybody that's ever done that. And for me, these opportunities... And they could be a variety of things. You could go into HVAC or welding or um, automotive programs or electrical or IT, just amazing things. Engineering, lots of different ways to go by taking that first step and taking a chance um, on yourself. And that's what we're trying to help students do is go try, you know, take a chance on yourself. You don't know what you don't know until you try it. And this class is really out of the box for some of our students.
0: Well, I always tell students college students try lots of different things yes they find out what you like you also need to find out what you hate too exactly uh, you put something that one student's going to like another student may hate you know professors yes. are always needing volunteers for research get involved with that oh. uh, do career relevant internships but get out and do a lot of stuff mm-hmm. I, I, I tell that everywhere I go or talk to students I tell them that
1: On this episode, Grandin and Banfield discuss the importance of checking sources and designing experiments that can be replicated to avoid errors such as the one with the spinach. In addition, they discuss the growing influence of artificial intelligence on education and the benefits of hands-on learning with projects like GREAT.
2: We took the guitar project and we've also added the robots and the rocketry. We felt all three hands-on projects really would Um, teach students basic skills, math skills, a lot of entry-level college skills. Across these three projects, they could learn a variety of different things that they share, and they each have something special on their own as well.
0: Well, that sounds just great. I've been watching all the chat GPT uh, stuff going on right now. I was just reading an article on The Guardian just before I came on here. Somebody wrote in a bunch of stuff and it spat out a computer program that was actually quite good I'm looking in the future as to which jobs will go out. I can see a lot of low-level programming stuff disappearing. And but the thing that's not going to disappear is anything that's done hands-on, whether it be building something or being a physical therapist or being an exercise instructor or a school teacher. Those things will not get taken over by artificial intelligence.
2: Yeah, we were, we were trying to get students excited about careers in STEM, and we work with a lot of small high schools that they don't have robust STEM experiences in their K-12. They just don't have enough students to be able to do that. And for us, when we came up with this project, we wanted to provide a hands-on STEM experience for, start. it could be a dual enrolled student. Uh, we did, we've done it for an Upward Bound summer camp for 9th yep. through 12th graders, and we do it on the college level. It's college credit. It's like a first-year experience class, if you will. And it really does teach those hands-on skills where they build the skill, the confidence in themselves that they could do something and maybe get a STEM career out of it, which would be really amazing.
0: I, one time on a plane, I saw a really cute movie called Spare Parts about a school in a low-income area and a science teacher um, had their kids build a robot. Some of it's fictionalized, but I fact-checked it. And um, this high school robot actually did beat MIT. And it's it like had to do an underwater task of grabbing different stuff. The other thing, I think on some of the robotics, uh, some of the robots have gotten so expensive. And I remember going to school and they had little cheap robots. You know, they had the Lego Mindstorms controller in it, but mm-hmm. then they had to, they wanted to get beyond Legos. And they had made the plywood wheels and it drilled holes around the rim of the wheel and then put rubber bands in it to give the wheels traction Because we need to have things that our low-income students can do. And making it out of cardboard, thin plywood, old bicycle parts. And one way to do that is really restrict the size and the weight. Well, that problem-solving, what you just talked about, is really what our goal of our
2: project is. To see something in the world that we've learned some skill in how to do maybe this thing. Now that we see another project over here, our problem area, can we use some of those skills we learned over here?
0: Well, that's right. The other thing is, is I'm the visual thinker who can't do math. So I'd work on the robot, like figure out how to put rubber bands in the wheels. And then another person's going to do the programming. Well, I think there is
2: room for all those skill sets in manufacturing and engineering. We need everyone that can do all levels in all areas, but teaching them this course to get started on maybe where their skill sets lie, where their comfort level lies. And they work as a team and they work, um, well, two at a time for the robotics. They work guitars. as they do a yep. one-on-one
0: project. But
2: but then I figured out how to do my part and I'm going to help you do the part you're on. Oh, that's right.
0: You see, this is a team effort. Mm-hmm. And then the robots usually have an assigned task they have. Mm-hmm. And you see, and that teaches an important work skill that you have to do programming or make a robot that does an assigned task. And those
2: soft skills, too really, to get st- teams to work together, um, I think we also work on those in our classes because soft skills are are, are important for the workplace, right? For the, for the job oh, market. Oh, that's right. And it's, it's kind of interesting to see, but people in STEM careers, we maybe think they're always science and math people, but they may not be, right? So they may be visual learners, they might be you know experiential learners, things like that, but they can be a part of STEM in a, in a myriad of different ways. And our project, really, we teach the skills Across all three projects, the robots, the rockets, and the guitars, we teach information literacy and design and critical thinking, measurement, algebra, technology, all those across all three projects. And on, your, those, on
0: your rockets, you use those pre-manufactured SD's rockets. I we think that company still exists.
2: We do have those, but then we also we do have those kits to kind of get them started. But then we build their own out of. Uh, a three by five card and poster board. And we they actually create it out of stuff we just put in a box and they get to create their own rocket. They'll use the engine, of course, that we purchased. And but, using um, a
0: pre-made engine, of course.
2: Pre-made engine, yes. It's really interesting, because we're, we're trying to attract folks to these classes that maybe don't find themselves in STEM careers. Maybe people didn't really have a fascination for math or science back in high school, but maybe they liked, um, you know, woodshop or a hands-on class they took in high school. And we think this is a really nice tie and they get into it and they're like, wow, I really can
0: do math. I, I didn't well,
2: know I could do algebra. Well, there. the
0: thing I've noticed, I get science and nature and I'm seeing things like a geometric pattern, a beautiful geometric pattern that's a pore in the wall of a cell or it's some uh, materials engineering thing. Mm-hmm. And they're absolutely wonderful on um, beautiful geometric patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some of these schools, you ought to subscribe to science and nature. Because I look at these patterns. I said, the math kids were going to just go crazy over this. They're going to like this so much. Yeah. So bees really, right? So beehives
2: are a great example of math and nature kind of married up there.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the other thing on careers and what you get interested in, uh, a a child can't get interested in something they're not exposed to. Exactly. Uh, You've got to start out with exposure. I got into the cattle industry getting exposed to it as a teenager. I didn't come from a cattle industry background. And then the next step was mentoring. I was out on my aunt's ranch. uh, And there was a very good contractor that mentored me to help me get my business started. I think
2: you talked um, about something quite nicely there. So we really did need to expose students earlier. So our original great project, the Guitars Robots Rocketry, we did it as a college course. We decided as we were looking at this project for a couple of years, we needed to reach students at a younger age. So we wrote another grant. And this one is based on the Great project, but it's called the Great Summer Institutes, where we are going to have a summer camp. An eight-day experience starts this summer, actually, at five of our rural locations at the college. And it's going to be based on the Guitars, Robots, and Rocketry College course. So in this summer, we're going to be doing robotics. We're excited about that. We're also really going to focus on those math skills. We want to get students in the summer. Sometimes, you know, that there's a little dip in Students learning over the summer, they don't usually raise their scores because they're out of school. So our hope is to continue some math over the summer to kind of keep them still connected to math and hopefully um, work on some, we're gonna work on geometry in particular because we think it pairs nicely with the um, robotics for the summer.
0: Well, you see where I really had problems with the algebra and I never got to take geometry, but if I can relate something back to a real thing, I did a little bit of trigonometry and I can understand how that would work on a suspension bridge. Or, or or, determining the direction a tree would fall when you cut it down. Mm-hmm. See, yep. that I can understand. If I relate it back, there's something real.
2: So our geometry project actually this summer will be involving this robotics. We're going to be focused on, you know, programming those robots to do certain paths and things. I imagine we'll have some triangles in there, some areas, some perimeters, but really going to work on those math skills that they usually do on paper pencil, and we're going to make them real life. Making it real. Robots. And,
0: and this is going to be for middle school kids?
2: It's ninth through 12th graders, rising ninth through 12th graders.
0: Because I think in some of this stuff, I mean, I took shop when I was in 5th grade. Yep. And I think that it's important. to We've got to expose kids young. We've got kids growing up today that have never used a ruler. They have never uh, used a tool. I'm yep. seeing many kids that have got a label making elaborate things with Legos. They're now, you know, 12, 13 years old. They've never used a tool. That's ridiculous.
2: It is crazy. So
0: I'm glad you said that.
2: Actually, one of the things we focus on in our college course, and we will, of course, on the summer program as well, is measurement. Because you're right. We find that students don't know how to use a ruler. How do they use the um, the imperial system or the metric system? And it it is shocking that they don't, but they don't. And that's okay. When we work with rulers, we work with calipers, we work with uh, yardsticks and tape measures, lots of different ways for them to kind of get that hands-on experience for something they probably mathematically figured out using paper pencil, but we've got to show them what it really looks like.
0: Well, I um, talked to a shop teacher just the other day that told me that now, you know, compared to 10 years ago, that they have to do two days of shop class just on how to measure.
2: And I'm glad you said that. The schools I serve don't offer shop. There is not even an opportunity for that. And many of these schools don't offer an art class. So they don't have an opportunity to get pen and paper in a creative way, or that opportunity just doesn't exist. They're such small schools, they don't have those things. So measurement is a one huge, huge thing that we really do focus on. We just assume it's a given and that's
0: not. No, they're just not exposed to it. Another thing that worries me, if you have kids that never do any hands-on things, they're going to make policy about stuff in the future. Because one of the problems with verbal thinking, it all gets way too abstract. How do we actually do something? Because in my book on visual thinking, I've got, I described a project where they had students from high schools that had different specialties. A science high school and art high school and a humanities kind of word based literary high school uh, invent a planet and draw it. There were teams of students and science students and the art students had elaborate planning sessions. The verbal thinkers did no planning. You see that's <laughs> that tendency to overgeneralize. And I'm having this all the time. I just got off a Zoom call about accommodations in the classroom for autistic kids. Well, let's figure out what specific thing they need. Now, I've learned over the years that there's like five or six basic things they may need. Okay, lighting flickering is a problem. Extra time on tests, getting away from noise and sensory breaks, not being able to remember long strings of verbal instructions. Those are basic things that come up all the time.
2: We've had students on the autism spectrum in these classes and they do really well because I think the combination of the small class size, the group work, the hands-on project. I think it's been just a really good positive. And some of the things you said, the long string of instructions. No, we here's a, here's the a skill we're working on. Let's apply it. Here's the next skill we're going to work on. Let's apply it. Let's do it with a hands-on project. Some of the projects we work on in this class, we do some soldering for the guitar. We have to get the electric gu- guitar to be so they learn this basic soldering to basic circuitry. It's a skill they don't see anywhere else in any other class I've probably ever taken. But maybe they get into it they say, you know what, I think I want to be an electrician. Or maybe I want to go into a you know, bigger, work for an electric company or things like that. Um, or work in, the, in a farm as doing you know all, all the electrical needs on, on that sort of thing. Because there's a large rural population here, a lot of farming. And
0: yeah, and a lot of farming. And the other thing, I'm, I'm, as I said before, I'm really thinking about what jobs that AI is going to take out. It's not gonna take out wiring a house. I can see low level web design just going out. Gosh, I've heard faculty talk about how they can use it as a positive for their students, right? How can they,
2: someone told me the other day, they were working on something for their preschool child and they put it in for in for chat GPT and said, how would I explain this to a five-year-old? And it wrote
0: it and explaining it to a five-year-old. Okay, I have a class on livestock handling. What other things do students learn from this class other than handling livestock? Things that would be generalized. Well, the importance of observ- observation, observing animals, observation. Mm-hmm. But I said the other thing is my internet project that I started ten years ago, because I I polled my students just this a week ago to say how many of you know about scientific beta- databases: Google Scholar, PubMed, Science Direct, Web of Science. Only like five hands out of over fifty students went up, and I said now with ChatGPT, it's going to be even more important to know how to go back to primary sources of information. Mm-hmm. And then I have them pick out a, a rather narrow subject in animal behavior if they're picking. And I want two journal articles off of each um, one of those databases and summarize it. And I uh, now that with all this AI, I'm going to say, this might be the single most important thing you're going to learn in school. It's more important than what cattle handling is. Is learning the importance now with all this AI of going back to primary data sources for things. And this project can teach you how to do that. I appreciate
2: you putting it in there because students need to understand that it does not all come from Google or from
0: Wikipedia, things like that. We need to know. The thing is, is okay, you just got a little kids uh, teaching lesson out of chat. Yeah. But then you still need to make sure because it makes up stuff when it doesn't have enough data. But then I just read in Nature... That um, it made up a whole bunch of scientific mistakes, and then they gave it a library of journal articles to read, and it learned. I'm glad you're you're doing that. We
2: unfortunately I wish we did more of that in this class that we are talking about because that is the next step, right? Is we we learn a skill, and then uh, how do we? Maybe we've made a discovery. How do we know we've made a discovery here, right? We got let's go let's go look, see if somebody else has learned the same thing we have, and if not, but maybe I'm this could be something that to
0: work on. I was kind of shocked. I mean, these are college students. And only like five hands, you know, like 10% of the students, when I asked them for a show of hands, knew what something like the PubMed database, Science Director, Google Scholar, was. And I think that's a a concern that the whole idea you need to go to primary sources. Okay, if it's news, check all four networks. The other thing they need to learn is they got to make sure they go to the actual websites because you can have spoofed websites that might have where it might have a a comma or something in a domain name where it looks almost right. Then make sure you're on the actual website of the primary sources. Yeah, details matter. Is that what you're saying, Dr. Randy? Details Details matter. matter. And I I wrote about that in Visual Thinking. I wrote about the case of the cancer experiments where two different labs used two different mixing devices for cancer cells. And it wrecked millions of dollars worth of research because it made the results impossible to replicate
1: one little one little thing one little thing in conclusion grandin also emphasizes the importance of making results and innovations available to others and banfield explains how the great courses will be available to other schools
0: there's a lot of innovative stuff being done in teaching and nobody's writing it up and one of the things I did with my cattle handling stuff is I wrote about it and I wrote about it in the trade press I wrote about it in the academic press and in books so that people on uh, I, other people can do it. I'm glad you said that because this
2: year is the end of our grant for the great grant, the first one. And this is when we'll send our research and our, our curricula often National science foundation. So other schools can pick it up. It's going to be very user-friendly for the, we're going to have it all kind of packaged, ready to go. And this is how we did it. This is what we did. And well, that, well, can adapt that's it at what you need for your students and your, in your school. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. We're excited about that.
2: Okay. We probably
0: have to go. I'm working on a paper right now. I've got to get the reference list finished.
2: Please do cite your sources. Okay. And cite the sources.
0: All right. uh, Great to talk to you.
2: I will tell you, I appreciate you um, having me on here today. It's been my pleasure to speak with you. And I want to thank you actually for taking the time to find out about the Santa Fe College great projects.
1: How'd You Think of That is a production of the Utah STEM Action Center in partnership with SQ Productions. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1745674.